Well, right now, if you would, please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Open your Bibles or, or open the, the app or swipe over to however you are engaging with God's Word this morning. Open to Mark chapter 10. We'll be reading from the ESV version. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have extras under the chairs of the center aisle. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias al Evangelio según Marcos, capítulo 10, versículos 1 a 12. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, this is a good and safe place to learn how to read the Bible. And today, this is a good and wonderful place to learn about something that is central to our human relationships. In the Gospel of Mark, if you haven't been with us, we've, we've been in the Gospel of Mark for about seven months. And, and over those seven months, our eyes, as well as the audience in Mark, have been opened to see that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Son of the living God. But what nobody saw coming is that the, the Christ had come to suffer. And what everything is moving toward is the reality that the, the cross, the coming cross, is what shapes the identity of the Messiah, of this Christ. And what Jesus has recently revealed to us in Mark chapter 9 is that Discipleship, following Jesus, is, is marked by the cross. Discipleship is cross-shaped. And today, oh my my, Jesus addresses a very sensitive topic. The topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And given the trend of cross-shaped discipleship, what do you think we'll discover through Jesus' teaching about marriage? Well, if you guessed that, that we'll learn that marriage is cross-shaped, then you're right. This is, this is a difficult subject, but we will come out on the other end grateful to God for what He has created in marriage. So, listen closely here we go, reading along in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful? For a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, ha, Well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. <laughs> this is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gifts. We thank you for opening our eyes to see who Jesus is, to see the, the new covenant that he has ushered in by his love, to see the gifts that you've given to us. Lord, I pray that you would, you would reopen our eyes where they've become blind this morning, that you would soften the hardness of heart that has encroached within our hearts. Would you do what only you can this morning and, and make us leave a grateful people today? 
grateful for you and your goodness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm paraphrasing. This is a much longer quote, but John Piper said that few things are more painful than divorce. It can be emotionally more heart-wrenching than the death of a spouse. Surprising words there. And he elaborates. He says, death is usually clean pain. Divorce is usually dirty pain. It's often long years in coming. The upheaval of life is immeasurable. The sense of failure and guilt and fear can torture a soul. You can feel like you wear a big scarlet D on your chest. Courtroom controversy compounds personal misery. And then there's often the agonizing place of children in the midst of all of it. Tensions over custody and financial support deepen the wounds. And that's just the surface. And yet in Orange County, nearly half of all marriages will end in divorce. Is that not staggering? To put it another, another way, nearly half of all married people in, in Orange County will conclude that divorce is the best option for them. That, that, that dirty pain that I just described, it's concluded that that is the best option available to them. Now, let me say three things before we jump into today's text. One, first thing, Jesus knows, and I know this is a very difficult topic, a very difficult, difficult topic, one of the most difficult that we could possibly address. And this is the reason why, because some, some of you have divorced parents. Some married people in this room may have considered, even recently, the possibility of divorce. Some may actually be divorced or, or, or lost your spouse to death. For some, you're not married and you just want to be married. You don't, you don't care about talking about divorce. That's, not even, that's a non-issue to you. You just want to be married and God hasn't given you the desire of your heart. Whoever you are, Jesus intends to walk alongside you compassionately. And so do I. Second thing. My intention is to stick to the passage before us, to let the text govern where we go. There is so much more we could say about marriage and divorce and remarriage. It is a vast topic, but Jesus has a purpose here, and Mark has a purpose in how he tells it. In fact, in fact Luke includes about seven additional chapters of travel narrative between Jesus' Galilean ministry and his Judean ministry that Mark just doesn't include. He jumps straight from his Galilean ministry into this, and he starts with this. So Mark has a purpose here for including this and not what he doesn't include. Only near the end of the sermon today will I venture beyond what this text says. So if you do have any questions after today, I would encourage you, come and talk to me or Pastor Jeff. We're going to be posting a blog post on Tuesday. Subscribe to the blog. It's a little plug right there. A blog post on Tuesday with additional resources for you to read up on if this is something that you do want to learn more about. Third thing. Third thing before we jump into this text. The pain and misery of divorce are not the best reasons to avoid divorce. Those are not the best reasons to avoid divorce. Those are legit reasons, but praise God, those aren't the best reasons. There are better reasons. There are good reasons. And in the text today, we can conclude three good reasons to avoid divorce, to eliminate that word from our language in our dialogue with our spouses, and to trust God with marriage. 
three reasons, and these will serve as three points for for our sermon today. First, man-made divorce. Man-made divorce. Secondly, God-made marriage. Third, God made marriage to display the beauty of his love. Man made divorce, God made marriage. God made marriage to display the beauty of his love. And if you're taking notes, this will again serve the outline, but but listen, there is one more reason. And it's a corollary, an outworking to the third. So we could say it's a fourth reason, but this is really the ultimate reason. And this is the, the one thing I really want you to get today. I want you to know this reason up front because it is so vitally important. And you're not going to see how this works out until we get to the end. But I want you to write this down. And even if you're not taking notes, send a text to yourself. Grab a pen from somebody next to you and write this down. This is the fourth reason. This is an ultimate reason why we should trust God with marriage. It's this. Jesus will never divorce his bride. Jesus will never divorce his bride. When I say that the cross shapes marriage, this is precisely what I mean, that Jesus will never divorce his bride. So we'll get there. We'll get to what I mean by that and how we arrive at that. But before we do that, now let's jump all the way back to the beginning with the first point born out of verse 1. So look down at verse 1 with me. Jesus, Jesus arrives in Judea. Okay, and this is a major transition. For the rest of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus will be in Judea. He's moved from Galilee. He's in Judea, marching toward Jerusalem and marching ultimately toward the cross. And though Jesus' geography has changed, his mission and his compassion have not. The same crowd is still following him Yet he still deigns to stop and to teach him, as verse 2 says, was his custom. But then a group of Pharisees show up, and they have an agenda in mind. They interrupt his teaching, and they ask him, verse 2, look down at verse 2 with me. They say, hey, hey Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? (laughs) Oh man, oh man, why this question? Why this question? I mean, mind you, this, this is the Son of God. There are so many other questions they should have asked him. But why this question? Well, the text tells us, Mark tells us, they asked it to test him, to, to trap him. But why ask this question to trap him? Okay, geography is important. So when Mark tells us that he came to Judea, there's something in there that we can, we can understand from what we also know from Mark. Think back to Mark chapter 6. Mark tells us in chapter 6 that John the Baptist was beheaded by whom? By, by Herod. Why was John the Baptist beheaded? Well, Because John the Baptist spoke out against Herod because Herod had taken his brother Philip's wife. His brother Philip's wife named Herodias. So he had, he had made Herodias divorce her husband, and then taken Herodias for his own wife. And John the Baptist said, hey, Herod, that's not lawful. You're, you're a Jew. That is unlawful according to the law. And Herod had him beheaded. Guess who rules in Judea? Herod. In Mark chapter 3, we discover that there was a, a, this unholy alliance between the Pharisees and the Herodians. They were in league together. So the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they're going, all right, Jesus is in Herod's jurisdiction now. We can work together with the Herodians. We can trap Jesus into into saying the same things that John the Baptist did and we can just get Herod to, to off Jesus. We can finally be rid of this problem because he's in our jurisdiction now. So they say, hey, Jesus, what do you think? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? But Jesus responds to their question, and, and I could be wrong, but I, 
I just imagine a slight smile crossing Jesus' face when he goes, what did Moses say? What did Moses command, you guys? And here in verse 4, R.C. Sproul said, find the drama in every text. And there, there is drama. It's just dripping with drama. Here in verse 4, they think they've got him because they immediately say, Deuteronomy 24.1, we've got him. Jesus says, what did Moses command? And they know Moses wrote Deuteronomy. And they know Moses wrote Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, which says, this is the full quotation of it, it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he may write a certificate of divorce and put it in her hand and send her out of his house. And they quote that by saying, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And you can just hear the smugness in it. Like, Jesus, we've got you. And the debate in Israel, it really centered around what some indecency in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 meant. What does some indecency mean? Well, there were really two camps. There was one more conservative camp who interpreted it as strictly as sexual immorality. If, if a wife has been sexually immoral, then a man may give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. The much larger camp interpreted it much more broadly. And the Pharisees and the Herodians both belonged to that camp. They interpreted some indecency as really anything, including, and this was, this was in the Talmud, if, if a wife improperly prepared her husband's dinner, he could divorce her. Either way, they've found somewhere in the Mosaic law that says divorce is permitted. What are you going to say now, Jesus? And then he says, verse 5. Look at verse 5. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this to you. He says, you guys are missing it. Deuteronomy 24.1 is the exception to the rule. It is an unfortunate allowance. In other words, because God's people were so inclined not to treat marriage as the diamond that it is, but instead as, as just another pebble that can be thrown off into the pile, disposed of and thrown into the pile of rocks and pebbles, because Israel was so inclined to doing that, God made an allowance in the law to limit what would otherwise be an unregulated free practice of divorce, remarriage, and sexual immorality outside of marriage, like it was with the pagan nations, where it was unregulated. Like it was in Rome at that very time, completely unregulated. So divorce, just like polygamy under the Mosaic law, this is actually helpful in when you're asking about, well, how does polygamy fit in the Old Testament? It's it's regrettably allowed, but never commanded. Here's a helpful phrase to, to understand this. It's permitted, but never praised. It's permitted, but never praised. Why permitted? Why allowed? Not because it's a reflection of God's ideal for his people. It was a reflection of the hardness of the human heart actually showed them their need for a Savior. And so what is this, this hard heart? This hard heart, it's a heart that fails to understand God's purpose in marriage. When Jesus says, because of your hard heart, he's saying, because of your failure to understand God's purpose in marriage, he made this allowance. A heart that rejects God's purpose in marriage sees divorce as a good option. And because this heart is so common in Israel. And notice, notice what Jesus says. He says, because of your hardness of heart. He didn't say because of the Israelites' hardness of heart thousands of years ago. He looks at the Pharisees in the eyes and he says, because of your hardness of heart. He lumps them in with the crowd. Because this heart is so common in Israel, until the Messiah comes and fulfills 
the law and brings a new covenant until that time, Deuteronomy 24.1 regulated and limited what would otherwise be an uncontrolled sinful practice. In other words, man made divorce. Man made divorce. Divorce comes from a hard human heart. That's where it originates. It does not come from a good place. You remember years ago when, uh, when a certain sandwich company, I think it was like three years ago, uh, their tuna salad was found to, to be not tuna? I grew up eating that tuna thinking that it had come from a good place, from, from tuna fish in the ocean. But then the covers were pulled back and the world realized that tuna is not tuna. And it did not come from a good place. It came from a, another place, I don't know where, less appetizing. Listen, divorce may present as though it comes from a good place, as though it's an option that God has presented that will have a good outcome. But it comes from a hard human heart. That's where it originates. So let me ask this. If God didn't make divorce, then what did he make? Which leads us to the second point. God made marriage. God made marriage. Moving on with verses 6 through 9. So here's the brilliance of Jesus' question in verse 3. Moses didn't just write Deuteronomy. Moses also wrote Genesis. And so when Jesus is saying, hey guys, what did Moses command? He's not thinking Deuteronomy 24.1. What he wrote in Genesis, what Moses wrote in Genesis that Jesus is thinking about and he's referring to in his question, that records God's original intention for marriage, which is Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, which he quotes directly back to them. He says, no, you guys, you're missing it from the beginning. From the beginning, God designed and upheld and honored marriage. Read verses 6 through 9 with me again. It's worth reading. He says, no, but from the beginning, you guys, of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Ah, this is so good. God created man as male and female, and immediately after creating humans, he gave them the gift of marriage. Immediately. Think about that. The very first institution that God created after creating humanity was marriage. And Jesus goes on to to make three conclusions here. Three conclusions that Jesus makes when he's explaining this to the Pharisees. One, in verse 8, those who are married are no longer two, but one flesh. There is no other human relationship like marriage. Full stop. Full stop. There's no other human relationship where one man and one woman leaves what is up to that point the closest human bond between child and father and mother, leaves that bond and is joined with another person. No other relationship with a bond this close. How close is this bond? One flesh. No longer two, but one flesh. Not, not one flesh like Siamese twins or conjoined twins. No, no, no. One flesh like me and myself are. Like you and yourself are. Jesus is saying, so close is the union of husband and wife, it's as if they have become one new person. 
This is no mere legal contract. Even though it's treated as such by the majority of the world around us. Second conclusion that he draws here in verses 6 through 9. This one flesh union is the creation of God. Not man. Verse, verse 9a. Look at this. What therefore God has joined together. John Piper summarizes very well. He says, so even though two humans decided to get married and a human pastor or priest or justice of the peace or some other person solemnizes or, or legalizes the union, all that is secondary to the main actor, namely God. What God has joined together. God is the main actor in the event of marriage. So first conclusion they're no longer two, but one flesh. Second conclusion, God has joined this union together. Third conclusion, we have no right to separate that union. We have no right to separate that union. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus is saying, that's what God has said from the beginning. If my union with my wife is as deep as one flesh and God has made this union, then I have no right to separate it. Listen, this is the second reason to refuse divorce. God made marriage. Husbands, this should make you hold your wife's hand just a little bit more tightly because she is God's gift to you. God has united her to you. Wives, God has united your husband to you in a one flesh union. My, my wife, nobody on earth can be or should be or will be as precious to me as she is. And I should never let myself forget that. And guys, never let me forget that. Never let one another forget that. It's too easy to forget. It's too easy to let the familiarity of life encroach on what is the most precious relationship that you will ever have. And before we move on to the final point, let me offer this other point of advice. This question, but, but what did God say? When Jesus asked, what, what did Moses command you He's really asking, what Jesus is really asking is, what did God say about marriage, you dopes? What did God say? This question, that question right there, what did God say? <laughs> it will resolve very many of your struggles against sin and many of your decisions that you struggle with. If you simply ask, what did God say? There is clarity on so many of the issues that we, we, are tr that we try to otherwise dance around should i entertain the possibility of divorce what did god say should i marry an, an unbeliever what did god say should i neglect the the gathering of believers for that other sunday activity that i have for the next six months what did god say should i forgive this person maybe it's my spouse even though i'm so deeply hurt and I've forgiven them so many times, and this just feels like it's the last straw. What did God say? Sometimes what God has said is very clear. Yet we will try to dance around it and avoid asking that question, what did God say? And that's the approach that Jesus takes with the Pharisees. He goes, guys, stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it. What did God say from the beginning? There's no debate here. God made marriage. God made marriage. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God made marriage, but he also tells us why he made marriage. And here, here we're getting to the sweetness, both of marriage and this text. This is where, this is where things start to get good. The third point, 
God made marriage to display the beauty of his love. And I'm drawing this from verses 10 through 12. And if you just read 10 through 12 with me a few minutes ago, you might be going, what? How did you conclude that from those verses? Track with me here. This is where we go a little bit beyond the text because Mark includes this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees in light of the cross that he's coming, he's marching toward. Remember, again, Mark is including this conversation very purposefully and it's right after Jesus reveals what discipleship in his kingdom means. It's cross-shaped and now he's going toward the cross and now all of a sudden there's this conversation about marriage but it's in light of the cross. So I want you to track with me. This is critical. The cross is where Jesus would express his undying love for those who believe in him. Those who believe in him are the church, right? And Jesus says in John 15, 13, and you might know this verse, greater love has no one than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus goes to the cross and he expresses that greatest of all loves by dying for those who believe in him. by taking their sin upon himself and paying the penalty of death for that and then giving them, us, who have believed in him, his righteousness. And Romans, Romans chapter 6 says that we have been, we've been united with him in his death and in his resurrection, so united in him that our sin is carried by him and paid for in him and his righteousness is applied to us as we're united in him. Does this not sound like a similar union that we've already been discussing this morning? This close union. You will find the words in him in the New Testament 67 times in relation to Christians and Jesus Christ. We are found in him. Now, Turn there. Turn to Ephesians 5.31. And you might be thinking, okay, I knew we were going to go here. I knew we were going to go to the, the typical, quintessential marriage passage. But I want you to see this with new eyes. Don't, don't assume you know what's going down here. Go to Ephesians 5.31. Several books ahead, right after Galatians. The Apostle Paul, who wrote Ephesians, he's writing after the cross, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. Paul's writing after this, several decades after, and he's teaching the church at Ephesus about marriage. Okay? And at the end of this teaching about marriage, he's, he quotes Genesis 2.24, the very passage in Genesis that Jesus just quoted. He says in in 531, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then look at verse 32. He says, what does he say? He says, this mystery is profound. This mystery is profound. In other words, why God made this thing called marriage and why he gave it such significance up until now has been a mystery to everybody. When Jesus said these words to the Pharisees, and he said, the two shall become one flesh, and what God has joined together, let not man separate. Even the Pharisees, the religious elite, didn't understand why. Why would God create marriage right after he created humans? Why is it so significant? Why is divorce not an option? What is the big deal about this? But but then Paul unveils mystery. Then Paul pulls the covers off. And he says, and he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I'm saying that this refers to Christ and the church. That's what this is all about. It's all 
about Christ and the church. In other words, why God made this thing called marriage and gave it such significance is a profound mystery. But the mystery is that marriage tells the story of the gospel. Marriage is a reflection of Christ and His undying love for His church. Marriage is quite literally cross-shaped because it tells the story of what kind of love was poured out on you at the cross. An undying, sacrificial, never-let-you-go kind of love. And God chose marriage to reflect the world's greatest love story that's ever been told. And if you're married, God looks at you and he says, I'm telling that story through your marriage. Imperfect though it may be, I am telling the gospel story through your marriage. And this, this, this parable, it's hidden until the cross. So, so Jesus has this conversation intentionally to prepare to ensure that marriage is rightly understood once he does establish the church. Once, once the church exists and he establishes his new covenant, he wants to make sure that marriage is rightly understood so that it rightly reflects the gospel that has just been accomplished. And so he goes even further with the disciples in verses 10 through, through 12. He's done with the Pharisees. The Pharisees have nothing to say in response to him. He shut them down. But he goes into a house with his, with his disciples once they're away from the crowd. And he tells them that if remarriage happens after divorce, it's adultery for man or woman. It seems like such a strange way to end this conversation and passage. And these are difficult words. And again, let's talk after the service. If, if you have questions, and I want to talk about these things and answer questions, but here's what I want you to know about these two verses. They're very, very, very good news for you. Let me tell you why. Because through all of this, Jesus, knowing full well that marriage is a reflection of what he's about to accomplish on the cross, a reflection of the covenant between him and his church, his bride, knowing this full well, he says, no husband or wife should divorce their spouse and marry another to show you that I will never do that. you that I will never do that. Jesus will never divorce his bride. That's the best news you can hear. Jesus will never divorce his bride. Divorce was never a part of God's plan for marriage because he made marriage to show his son's love for the church, for you. And Jesus will never divorce his bride to go after another, ever. He never abuses her or neglects her. He never abandons her. He always receives her back when she strays away and wanders away from him. He will never divorce his bride. And our marriages tell the story of that love. Now, before we close, I want to give some, some direction. I want, to, I, want to, I want to help you to know where to go with this. And I want to talk to five groups of people. Okay, before, before we, we close here. First group of people I want to, I want to talk to is the divorced and the divorced and remarried. I'm conscious of how all this can land on you. You feel that, that scarlet D on your chest. Fear, guilt, shame. What does God really think of me because I did this? I know this was wrong. Whatever you're thinking, here's what you need to know. If you repent and trust Christ, you are in the bride of Christ. And Jesus will never divorce you. 
if you receive him as the treasure who bore your punishment and became your righteousness, you are, in his, you are, you are part of the bride of Christ. Even if you have sinfully divorced or remarried, if you repent and trust in him, he relates to you not according to your sin, but as part of his bride. Acts chapter 10 verse 43 says that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And even the sin of divorce and remarriage is no exception to that. This is why this teaching is really good news because if marriage reflects Jesus' relationship to his beloved and Jesus allowed divorce for any random reason, then we'd have no assurance that he'll always love us. That's the flip side. If Jesus was okay with divorce and divorce really did reflect or in marriage really did reflect the gospel, then we would know a story of the gospel where the husband, the bridegroom, would leave his bride. But Jesus does not tolerate it. He is not okay with that. Because he will never leave those whom he set his love upon. And if you are in that group of divorced or remarried, that's what you need to know above all. In repentance and faith, there is eternal and unending acceptance and love from God. Second group, those who are married. Let me give one quick disclaimer. The broader teaching of Scripture, specifically in 1 Corinthians 7, does allow for divorce under the new covenant only in the case of sexual immorality and abandonment by an unbeliever. So there, there are allowances. And the reason is because sexual immorality, it violates the covenant. It breaks the covenant. That one flesh union, it's flesh being joined with another, and it's a breaking of the covenant. But, outside of that, to the married in the room, here's my counsel to you. Cherish one another. Cherish your spouse. My goodness. No, you did not marry an angel you, you married a person who's a sinner, and you're a sinner. You knew what you were getting into at the beginning of this, but God made a union between you and the sinner that you married. More than that, He gave you your spouse as a gift. He gave you your spouse as a gift so that you could reflect the greatest love story that's ever been told. So live it. Live that love story. Stop going about your marriage as though it's about what you can get from it. That's not what it's about. Marriage isn't about you. Marriage is not about you. In fact, it's not even about your spouse. In fact, it's not even about the two of you together. It's about Jesus and reflecting His glory and loving the other sacrificially so that that. The, the portrayal of his gospel is proclaimed among you. And so that the, the, the quality of his love is vindicated as the best love there is, self-giving, sacrificial love. It's about giving glory to Jesus. And the sooner that we can get that in our marriages, that is not about what I can get from my marriage. The healthier our marriages will become. I can guarantee that. How do we give him glory in our marriages? By cherishing one another. By delighting in one another. You don't find your spouse delightful at the moment? There are times when that's true. Find something that, that you delight in. And I can guarantee there's something delightful about your spouse because God's spirit resides within them and he's bearing fruit in them. If you can't find anything to delight in them about or cherish them for, that's you problem. Not a them problem. Love your, self, your, your spouse sacrificially. Think you've done enough sacrifice and it's now your turn to get yours? Well, who's your model in marriage? It's Jesus. 
And he sacrificially loved all the way until his own death on behalf of the ones he loved. Have you sacrificed? Have you sacrificially loved up until your own death? If the answer is no, keep going. Keep on going. And going and going and going for the glory of his name. Several years ago, a, a marriage counselor, a dear friend of mine named Gary Ricucci, said something to me that has never left my mind. He said, there is nobody in the world who can give your wife the kind of love that you can, who can give her the kind of affection that you can. And if you withhold that from her, there is nobody in the world that she can get that from. It was a sobering moment for me to realize. God has placed me in my wife's life to love her like Christ and to make her appreciate and grow an affection for, ultimately, Christ as she sees Christ reflected in my love for her. She's not going to get that anywhere else in the same way but from me. Husbands especially, you have a high responsibility to love your wife like Christ loved the church. And we need to help one another with that. If you're thinking about divorce, just know that is not God's Spirit speaking to you. That's your hard heart. It's not God's Spirit. It's not coming from a good place. That's your hard heart. Third group, singles. Singles in the room, whatever age you are, let me encourage you, take marriage seriously. Don't compromise and marry someone who isn't a Christian. And you think, gosh, that sounds overly dogmatic. Why would I say that? Well, one, because what did God say? Two, because belief in the gospel is central to the survival of marriage. The gospel not only tells spouses how we ought to treat one another, it's the only thing that provides sufficient motivation to stay together when times get really tough. And if you have been married for, for any number of years, you know times get tough. There are days when you go, yeah, I'm not finding anything to delight in about my spouse. I kind of just want to keep my distance from him or, or her. Probably had those days. I've had those days. and Almost every time, it's a me problem, not a her problem. But, but it's a gospel that has brought us back together and supplied sufficient motivation to remain together. Take it seriously. But also, on the other hand, if, you, if you're single and you're wanting to get married, but God hasn't given you the desire of your heart, and you're asking, why? Why? If you're going, yeah, I'm, I'm convinced that divorce isn't an option, I... I I want to give myself to somebody like this. and I want somebody to give themselves to me like this. Why hasn't God given me the desire of my heart? I would tell you, I don't know. I don't know. But I know that God is good. And I would echo the wise words of Charles Spurgeon who said, had any other condition been better for you, then the one in which you are in, divine love would have put you there. Had any other condition been better for you than the one that you're in, divine love would have put you there. And it is divine love that has put you in the situation you're in now. He's good. The fourth group, and we're almost done. Youth. Youth. Younger people. And parents, you can relay this to your kids who are in a children's ministry. Encourage them to do this. But youth, en encourage you to watch marriages. Watch them closely. You are growing up in an age when marriage is not held in high regard by the world around you. At all. It's not a diamond. It, it's, it's, it's almost not even a, a stone. It's refuse. It's garbage to so many around us. 
So watch the godly marriages around you. Aspire to become a godly wife or a godly husband one day. Watch your parents and thank them. It might, it might feel so awkward and weird, but walk up to your parents one day and say, hey, thank you for showing me what sacrificial love looks like in your marriage. Thank you for giving me something to model my future marriage after. And don't be afraid to also say, hey, mom and dad, keep doing that so I still have a good model. Remind your parents how important their marriage is because they're watching you, because you're watching them, rather. Husbands and wives, we need that reminder sometimes. The people are watching. They're looking. They're wanting a good example. Fifth and finally, fifth and finally, the fifth group, the widowed and widowers. Oh, goodness. The pain and the grief that you know, it's a grief that feels so isolating. Like only you can understand it, but... Let me encourage you. As one who doesn't understand that grief personally, I understand how good marriage is and how good God is. So let your grief only heighten your gratitude to God for the marriage that he did give you. And let it remind you that it was only a reflection of the sweetness of the relationship that you still have with Jesus. By faith. Friends, as we close, for all of us, if you have been united to Jesus by faith, here's the good news that marriage tells all of us. Jesus will never divorce his bride. He will love us always. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, what good news it is that Jesus came not just to die for our sins, but to unite himself to us forever to know that there is nothing in all creation that could separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord and we thank you for the parable of marriage that confirms that to us I pray Lord that our marriages would proclaim the gospel loudly I pray that husbands in this room would joyfully and enduringly and perseveringly sacrifice for their wives. I pray that, that wives would, would joyfully and intelligently follow their husbands as they follow Christ. I pray that, that marriages would be characterized by deference to one another as they together defer to Christ and live for His glory. Would He be glorified in us and among us? Would you strengthen marriages? Would you give the gift of, marriages, of marriage to those who desire it? Would you comfort those by your grace who were in marriage, who've lost their spouse? Oh Lord, would you do what only you can do among us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.